Welcome to Fine Laws Don't Judge Me, the show about the law in real life. I'm Laura Temi, and I'm joined in this happy, happy new year by Joe Fawbush. We're back and better than ever. <laughs> well, I guess that remains to be seen. We'll do our best. <laughs> Knock on wood, right? <laughs> <laughs> and Veda Himetha. Hey, welcome to Year of the Rabbit. Hi. Woohoo! 23 looking strong. And uh, what happened uh, on the first of this year, one of many things being things went into the public domain. Yes, public domain day, which I'm such a nerd that like I love public domain day and most people have no idea what that is. Yeah, we have a really interesting show for you today. We're talking about some of my favorite things, um, copyright law, the public domain and horror movies. (laughs) That'll do it. That'll do it. Yeah, I I think before we get too much into the weeds, I need to mention the movie <laughs> event of the year oh that God. is coming yes. up on February 15th. And this is just, I, I can't wait. I'm actually so excited about this. <laughs> Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey. You heard that right, folks. Yes, it's a Winnie the Pooh horror film. <laughs> I know, I I don't, I will not watch it actually. Um, I don't think so anyway. This is one of those movies. It's a slasher film. It looks mm-hmm. like it was filmed on an iPhone with a budget of about $50. <laughs> it probably um, was. Yeah, right. <laughs> Poor Alan Alexander Milne is rolling in his grave. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it's kind of <laughs> as awful as you would think it is. It's, it's about Christopher Robin comes back to the hundred acre wood and, Winnie the Pooh and Piglet have felt abandoned and have become feral wild animals, but he's he's still like in human shape. So Well, that's the thing, is like that's the thing that like I look, I'll be honest <laughs> with you. I'm gonna watch it. You know I'm, you gonna, know I'm gonna watch it. <laughs> Joe, you know your kids are gonna wanna watch it. You're not gonna take them. That would traumatize them for life. <laughs> very violent. Like yeah. it's gonna be very violent. Um, not you really. I'm definitely gonna watch it. The thing that's freaking me out about it watching the trailer is is yeah like it's not <laughs> it's not a CG bear or anything mm-hmm. like this or like they have human hands cuz they're just wearing like a mask is that what it is And so it looks yeah it looks like just people with masks and so I feel like for me that was a missed opportunity but I don't know like I said yeah. I'm still going to watch it It looks like a kind <laughs> of a typical serial killer in the woods only he's wearing mm-hmm. a bad Winnie the Pooh Halloween costume right. instead of a right. hockey mask Exactly. Yeah. But other than that, mm-hmm. it's like every trope that you could think yeah. of for a slasher film. Like there's right. It's know, a bunch of it's a bunch of like college kids in a yeah. cabin somewhere. Like yeah, it's gonna be fun. But you know, I guess we should get to to our legal point since we're a legal podcast. <laughs> but the the legal question here is why is this movie happening? Now? Yeah. Why, given that it's such an obviously great idea, hasn't it happened? <laughs> You know, and and the yeah the original author of of um, Winnie the Pooh probably didn't see it going in this oh, direction. Dear. So how did we get here? Is the question. You were talking about the January first uh, celebration for copyright nerds. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so the original book has now entered the public domain, and so creators are able to use those characters, but just the characters from the original book. Mm-hmm. And they can come up with their own stories, their own movies to a certain extent, which I'm going to leave that in your capable hands, Laura, so I don't uh, oh, say the wrong thing. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there, there's definitely, I mean, Disney, of course, would never have allowed this two years ago. Mm-hmm. 
but now they don't really have a choice. The movie has actually been very careful about not interfering with Disney stuff. Like it, it's mm-hmm. pretty clear that it's not a Disney movie from the trailer. Yeah. Yeah. So the, uh, I guess to, I'm going to, I'm going to try to keep this from being boring because so the, it all comes down to this pretty simple question of how long does a copyright last? Because mm-hmm. the, the reason that this movie is able to be released now is because the characters from the original Winnie the Pooh book are no longer protected by copyright. Mm -hmm. And that seems like a pretty simple question, but the answer is really complicated, even for the legal world, partially because before 1978, the United States had this truly unhinged copyright process that required registration and renewal. And I don't want to bore anyone with the details, so I'll just say it was a whole thing. (laughs) Um, (laughs) meanwhile, (laughs) I don't want to do full on time traveling lawyer today. We don't need to get into it. But meanwhile, Europe was pretty much unified in Mm -hmm. its copyright duration. So countries had signed on to the 1886 Berne Convention, which agreed Mm -hmm. that copyright protection would last for the lifetime of the author plus another 50 years. And by the mid seventies, Congress said, okay, enough already. And they passed the Copyright Act of 1976, which did a couple of really important things. It removed registration and copyright notice requirements and replaced Mm -hmm. it with what we have now, which is the fixed in a tangible medium Mm -hmm. requirement. Essentially, and a lot of people might not know this, you can have a copyright in something without registering it. Essentially, as soon Mm -hmm. as you write it down, record it, paint it, whatever, it's yours. It also codified the fair use defense to copyright infringement and most importantly to what we're talking about today, it created a fixed copyright term of life of the author plus 50 years and mm-hmm. 75 years for a couple other like specific types of works. So copyright protection lasts for the life of the author plus 50 years, right? Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so now I have to time travel a little bit. I want to take you to 1998. The highest grossing movie is Saving Private Ryan. The Furby is the hottest, most terrifying toy on the market. <laughs> Not as terrifying as the Shelby, I have to say. Oh, yeah. I forgot. Do you remember that? that? Yep. It's naked mole rat oh, cousin. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, uh, well, Andy's not here, but I have to throw this one in just for him. 76 million people tuned in to watch the series finale of Seinfeld. <laughs> <laughs> I was one of them. <laughs> so five years before this, the European Union had adopted a new rule for copyright terms, which extended copyright protection to the life of the author plus 70 years. And that Mm -hmm. sounded pretty good to some high-profile copyright holders in the U.S., namely Disney, which only had about 10 years left on its copyright for the earliest version of Mickey Mouse. So Disney and others lobbied Congress, and in 1998, they passed the Copyright Extension Act. So the copyright duration for new works was Life of the Author plus 70 Years, but the act also extended protection for existing works, which made Disney Mm -hmm. very, very happy. Uh, This meant that nothing new would enter the public domain between 1998 and 2019 and meant that Mickey Mouse would remain under copyright for about another quarter century. (laughs) Just a little side note about when when I was first learning this. So I learned copyright law from the late, great Ken Port, who was a pretty well-known scholar in copyright and trademark. And when we were discussing this, this law change in the 1990s, I complained about this freezing of the public domain. And he called me a communist. <laughs> and I gotta be honest, it was my favorite day of law school. <laughs> he just says, Laura, I wasn't aware that you were a communist. 
<laughs> and he just would say things like that. So, <laughs> but yeah, it's 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 an interesting it's an interesting thing, and the the public do- people have differing opinions about the public domain um, and its importance. Some people argue that strong copyright protection helps to foster more creativity, and some people argue that a robust public domain helps foster creativity. Apparently, I'm a communist because I'm. Well, more yeah, there's the, the, there's know. some First Amendment <laughs> concerns at play if, if things can't go speedily to the public domain, right? Right, right. Well, and, and yeah, the the Constitution kind of requires copyrights to expire eventually. Yeah, sort of, but it also gives Congress power to extend existing copyrights, which have which has been the source of some heated, you know, litigation like. Some folks tried to argue that the Congress doesn't have the ability to keep extending copyright extensions like they have been throughout the decades because Mm -hmm. the ability to extend it uh, indefinitely could just give it the ability to have uh, no time limits at all uh, on on copyrights, which, you know, uh, it's supposed to have a limited time um, Mm -hmm. on copyrights. Well, yeah, it's similar to patents that way where, like, patents have an expiration date. It's a patent can only go for so long and then you're done and then it becomes part of the public domain. Meanwhile, trademarks in mm-hmm. a way can go on forever. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's an interesting thing in in IP. <laughs> yeah, and so far so far the Supreme Court has said, "Hey, Congress Congress is the fact that they've extended it time and again, um, and that, you know, they just keep extending it. It's okay because so far they haven't done anything that's so egregious that it looks like it's going to they're just going to do away with the time limits. But mm-hmm. that could be an argument in the future if, if if Congress keeps trying to extend it. And, and, and you know, sometimes the, the proponents of Congress's extensions have argued a number of things, but amongst them has been, well, life expectancy has increased since the copyright mm-hmm. uh, statute was first at play. So mm-hmm. with increased life expectancy, you need to have increased times on copyrights for it to be viable. So how are we compared to Europe now? Are we, do we have more? Do we have less? Is it the same? Since the Copyright Extension Act, we are in line with the European Union with life of the author plus 70 years. Mm-hmm. So, which is why it was pretty unlikely that Congress was going to try to extend this yeah. again. Um, I, I mean, at least in my opinion, I don't foresee that happening um, because the, yeah, the Europe and um, I believe most Asian countries as well it's it's life of the author plus seventy years. Yeah. Yeah. So that would be very hard to justify extending mm-hmm. it because one of the key rationales for extending it in the first place is like, hey, the rest of the world is in line. Let's get in line. So then, if you all right. of a sudden go back and say, no, let's get out of line again, um, yeah. then yeah, you're kind of so that does make sense why there was and historically such a push. the EU. Yeah, historically the EU has seemed to have stronger copyright protections than we have. So the 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 Mickey Mouse Act, all um, pro- more properly known as the Sonny Bono Copyright Term Extension Act, which is the 1998 one that Laura just re- referenced, um, it was retroactive in the sense that it extended like the terms of protection for works that were already copyrighted mm-hmm. and created before the act took place, but it did not. It's not retroactive in the sense that it didn't revive copyrights that had already expired. And I will say that the EU, EU's copyright legislation even revived copyrights that were expired. So in a Mm -hmm. sense, they're still a little bit stronger than than ours. Yeah, they pulled some stuff back out of the public domain. That's true. Yeah. Whereas here, anything that was already Mm -hmm. public domain stayed there. 
Yeah. I always think of it as that, like, uh, I always think of the public domain as if it's an actual place, like the way I talk. <laughs> me it. too. Me <laughs> too. Like, I didn't realize that until just now, but I kind of, whenever I refer to it, it's like this magical land of like, <laughs> like a town square in Disney World or something. Yeah. Like. Or almost like the afterlife or something. Like, yeah. once you go yeah, there, you can't like, come back. Like, that's it. You're done. It's like the You're graveyard done. of. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Copyright graveyard. Um, <laughs> So the EU was able to revive, like, copyright zombies from that graveyard, and mm-hmm. we can't, like, in, in the United States, once you're once you're out there, you're out there. Right. I kind of um, want to go back to the Winnie the Pooh Blood and Horror movie real yes. quick. So, like I said, they had, it's a terrible representation of Winnie the Pooh. That's your uh, opinion, Joe. Yeah, no, that's, that, <laughs> that's totally a subjective opinion. Uh, don't sue me. Um, but I think partially that was intentional because, you know, we're talking about public domain and copyright. And so I don't know if either of you have read the original Winnie the Pooh book anytime recently, but the drawings in that book don't look anything like the Disney character that we know Mm -hmm. and love, you know, with the Mm -hmm. red shirt, no pants, Thing. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and some of the characters from Disney weren't in the book originally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Tigger, most notably Tigger. And is, maybe yeah. Eeyore? Yeah. No, I Eeyore, Eeyore was, was in the, the Yeah, Eeyore was, was in, in there. He looks different. Rabbit? I, I think the only one, I think the only one who wasn't in the original book was Tigger. Oh, okay. But I mean, it, Disney did add characters to their movies like mm-hmm. Gopher and. Uh, yeah. Maybe even Kanga and Maybe Kanga and Rue. Yeah, I think that might I can't been. remember. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it, it partially because Disney does have a trademark on its interpretation mm-hmm. of the original mm-hmm. Winnie the Pooh. So if this horror movie had a cartoon that opened up with, you know, the Disney song and they had Winnie the Pooh in his red shirt and mm-hmm. all of those things were, and then all of a sudden it turned into a slasher flick, they would. Right. St- I mean, not only would they anger every parent in America, but they also would, uh, they would be in legal trouble because, you know, they can't try to pass it off as like a Disney movie. It's just, Mm -hmm. this is Winnie the Pooh. It's in the public domain. We're going to take it in this wildly different direction. So the red shirt is a trademark and not a copyright? And not the red shirt itself, but just what, like the, the current image of Winnie the Pooh it's trade dress right well and, and that's where it that's where it all gets kind of interesting where even if we talk about mickey mouse where next year in 2024 the original the copyright on mickey mouse will expire but it's only the earliest version of mickey mouse so that's like way way back steamboat willie when he's on his little <laughs> boat whistling and, yeah. you know whistling yep. and and i think back then he wore pants and no shirt is that right yeah he a- had instead pants of shirt on. and no pants <laughs> i think it was pants and suspenders and no shirt <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah like if someone wanted to make some you know some version of steamboat willie they could do that but they wouldn't be able to do a recreation of the oh what's the show the gloved that's on the white now like Mickey Mouse yes exactly white glove yellow button Mickey Mouse and or like his voice and things like that it, that's where that's where public domain can get a little interesting where certain versions of a character are fair game and some aren't and I guess the characters that from Winnie the Pooh that Disney came up with that were not in the original book uh, at least Tigger that's Probably a reason that there's no Tigger, I assume, in this horror movie, right? Right. Yeah. Yep. Then they actually limited it to only the two characters, Pooh and Piglet. Okay. 
Like oh. I said, I, I think they were actually pretty careful. It sure looks like it, yeah. Yeah, I, I was a little bit surprised um, because it, it does kind of look like a low budget, but I think it's actually kind of embracing the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I think their idea is like, oh, maybe it'll be really scary and people will love it, but if not, everybody's going to think it's funny who goes to see it. Yeah, I mean, the, the big difference in what what Blood and Honey is doing versus if somebody just straight up pulled the the illustrations that we see in modern Winnie the Pooh books is this idea of like an idea versus an expression, um, which is a pretty, a pretty big doctrine in copyright law. Yeah. Sometimes you'll refer to this idea as the ID expression distinction or the ID expression dichotomy. And um, it's kind of a legal doctrine that's been around uh, articulated by the Supreme court um, for a while. Um, The Supreme court has said that unlike a patent, a copyright gives no exclusive right to the art disclosed. It's only given to the expression of the idea and not mm-hmm. the idea itself, which yeah. a patent would. And so that's, this is just distinct. Oh, I'm sorry. This is striking a balance between what we talked about earlier, first amendment uh, rights and the copyright protections mm-hmm. by allowing some what, you know, free communication of like facts, but still protecting an author's creative expression. Yeah, it, it's not what you say so much as how you say it, basically. Yeah, often. So um, you guys are nerds. You'll be familiar with. <laughs> st- wow. We all are. We all are on this podcast. <laughs> right. I say that with love. I say that with love. Maybe I'm it's pretty cool, good that okay. Andy isn't here because he would he would possibly not. Uh, he'd probably be making more fun of us. But <laughs> we're all familiar with st- like Star Wars, The Matrix, The Wizard of Oz, countless other examples arguably follow a similar pattern that mm-hmm. some people might recognize as maybe the hero's journey. Mm-hmm. Now, um, this might be a bad example because like the concept of hero's journey is so old that it's not like there's someone who holds a copyright to it. But let's say George Lucas wanted to copyright this concept or formula, um, which you could argue a number of movies after Star Wars Episode Four have used. He can't do that. You can't copyright this idea or this formula. Anyone can use the general formula that Lucas or arguably countless other people have used to make their own adventure stories, so mm-hmm. long as it's not the same dialogue lines or the same characters or the same super similar plot or like really the same exact story. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's really, you know, like hard sometimes to say like what can and can be copyrighted. And so I have some fun little hypos <laughs> that we can we can go through. Uh, I think they're fun. Pop quiz time. Pop quiz time. I can dust off my, my copyright law studies. Let's go. Yeah, this is a uh, Laura. Hopefully you will nail this. Um, hopefully. And not fail this. Yeah, m- maybe I should go first, and then uh, Laura can correct all of my answers, <laughs> so so that they're actually correct. <laughs> well, I think this will th- this will start to make sense as we go. Okay, it, I think. all right. So, so let's say Joe's planting his cucumber garden, and you come up with this really effective method of getting your cucumbers to thrive because you, oh yeah, Joe, you have a bunch of pets, right? Yes. What is the weirdest pet you have? Probably the hedgehog. Definitely a hedgehog. Okay. So let's so say, cute. what is his name? Bristol. That, that's Bristol. a fantastic, fantastically appropriate. So, yeah, the, it's actually, it's my daughter's pet. And uh, she was very excited to name her Bristol. 
Yeah. She <laughs> she is this. cute. I will I will say she's cute. She's only <laughs> bitten me once. Um, <laughs> let's say Bristol peas on your cucumbers. And they just shoot up like Jack's beanstalk. And you're like, oh, my God, I got to write a book about this. I got to I can get rich off this. I got to tell the world. So you you write a book. You describe this revolutionary hedgehog pea technique in your gardening book. And people are like, well, that's weird. And it's a total flop. Okay. Laura <laughs> picks up a copy of your book. Tries, she's like, what is this? She tries it for herself. And she's like, whoa, my cucumbers are next level. Now she writes another book using your same hedgehog pee method in her own words and her book totally takes off. Can you sue her for copyright infringement? I wish, but probably not unless I got a patent. Not unless you got a patent in which you could maybe sue her for patent violation. But yeah, Laura copying your idea, even your exact method, but putting in her own words is that's not copyrightable. It's not copyright Mm -hmm. infringement. Um, and this was a, a, a famous case called Baker v. Selden. A Supreme Court explained that, you know, a book did not give an author the right to exclude others from practicing what was described in that book. So exclusive rights to a what they call a useful art, like apparently hedgehog pea gardening, mm-hmm. is only available in patent for protection. That one seems like it it, it makes sense, right? Yeah. But the the good thing is that there are intellectual protections for it. It's just not copyright. That's why mm-hmm. this distinction is, is pretty important. Yep. So, okay, that one, patent covers that. But there's ones that are that are trickier, right? So are either of y'all into poetry? On occasion. It's, I feel like yeah. it's harder and harder to find people who are genuinely into uh, poetry these days. But you guys will see, like, friends who, like, want to be really smart that will have a collection of poetry on their coffee table <laughs> or, like, mm-hmm. A, a big book of Van Gogh's paintings, like, like coffee table reads, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So often those kinds of books are not, whoever made the Van Gogh book did not make the Van Gogh paintings, right? Mm-hmm. Whoever published the co- the poetry collection did not write those poems. So like, what's going on here? Is there no copyright violation? And is there no copyright protection for that book? So Laura, let's say you're really into poetry and you can do, you think you can do better than all these snobby coffee table reads that you see at Barnes and Noble. Mm -hmm. And you want to publish your own anthology by, oh man, everyone that comes to mind for me is so old that their stuff is probably in the public domain. I literally can't think of any, (laughs) any poet whose works is probably not in the public domain. So whatever, let's just say you want to publish a bunch of poems by living authors whose Mm -hmm. works are still under copyright protection. Can you do that? Well, sure, but not without their permission, okay? You got to get these authors' permission to use their poems in in your collection. So you call up the poets, you get their permission, and you publish Laura's collection of pretentious poems to impress your friends. (laughs) That's exactly (laughs) what I would call it, too. (laughs) (laughs) That's cool. You can do that because Mm -hmm. uh, you got their permission. But recall, you do not then magically get the copyright to these poems, right? You can't just... Someone letting you use their works is not the same as someone assigning you the copyright, Mm -hmm. Um, nor do you need to hold the copyright in order to publish them as long as you have the permission. So that's an Mm -hmm. important distinction, permission and and getting the copyrights transferred. So now moving on, if Joe sees you write this collection of poetry and he's like, oh, cool. Well, Laura stole my book. I want to (laughs) make some side hustle money because my gardening book was a flop. So he's like, well, that, that looks easy. 
like Laura did this, she got the permission. Can Joe do that? So let's say, you know, Joe calls up all these poets and they're like, Jesus, why are all these Thompson Reuter folks bothering me? Okay, <laughs> fine, Joe, you can use my poems too. Cool. Well, then Joe goes and publishes his own anthology of these same poems. Can he do that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Mm, as long as he tricky. as long as he arranges them differently. Mm, there we go. It's it gets tricky, right? If <laughs> if Joe and, and I don't even know like how differently you'd have to arrange them because a collection uh, can be copyrighted mm-hmm. um, d- depending on. Yeah. So you would have to distinguish your collection like it might even have to be a different list. It might not even be, you know, Laura could possibly copyright you if you had the same list, but in a different order, maybe. Is that something that could potentially lead to litigation? Like, let's say I do that and I uh, change out one poem and I modify the introduction that Laura wrote, you know, so instead of her two pages, it's my two pages. Is that something that might be worth litigating over because it's a close question or is it pretty well established that if you just do a few things differently, it's okay? Yeah. (laughs) Well, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna go ahead and quick say I'm not, I'm certainly not an expert in this. It was my favorite thing to study in law school. And that's about the the extent of it. I just don't want to get in trouble. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it it gets into um, a lot of times what we talk about in copyright is substantial similarity. And with with an anthology kind of a thing, you have to find a way to differentiate it, whether it's reordering you know reordering the poems changing out a few of them it's it can be a gray area and worth litigating for sure for sure and and sometimes it'll be like circuit by circuit or case by case but i guess a a common understanding is that certain things like collections or lists are often Mm -hmm. they don't have copyright protection in and of themselves so a great example Mm -hmm. is a cookbook right Mm -hmm. so how are cookbooks published well like there, a cookbook is a compilation of recipes. Um, mm-hmm. A cookbook can be protected under copyright law as a. So if you just have a list of recipe ingredients, right? Y'all remember? Oh man, the Nestle Toll House chocolate chip cookies bag. Mm-hmm. On the back of it, it'll have that famous recipe that I'm sure everyone's used. I've used it so many times growing up, and uh, you know it's pretty basic. But if you were to take that same ingredient list, like however many cups of flour, baking soda, butter, whatever. And if you were to put that in your own cookbook and publish it, mm-hmm. you could not be sued by Toll House or anybody else for using that ingredient list so long as you didn't word for word regurgitate their steps. Mm-hmm. Cookbooks do have copyrights. Mm-hmm. So how do they get that? Or even blogs, you know, someone's cooking blog. You guys will see on cooking blogs these days, like lots of blogs will have like a little life anecdote, like lots of, you'll be like, get to the point already. You have to like scroll the <laughs> way down to the bottom. I don't want to hear your life story. Oh, I know. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I think part of the reason they might want to do that is like because it adds protection because it's an expression. Um, when you describe a technique of cooking in a very particular way, that is what is copyrightable, but not the facts themselves. Yeah, it, it's a little bit like trademark where... And we, I mean, we don't have time to get all the way into trademark, but we have sort of a spectrum of trademark strength. Um, copyright is kind of the same way where different types of work are going to have different levels of copyright strength. And yeah, cookbooks and anthologies are a good example of like the lower end of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. 
so yeah, that's all, that's all copyright stuff. But regardless of whether or not you can get a copyright for something, once you have it, you have it for a long time. Mm-hmm. And um, that's why Laura's favorite day of the year is public domain day. Mm-hmm. You get to geek out about the fact, I mean, I guess movie studios and, and people who want to make adaptations and stuff like that get to have a new batch of sort of like public domain releases every year. Mm-hmm. It's especially good for, speaking for myself, local theater producers, because then you mm-hmm. can adapt things without having to pay for it. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> adaptations are hard. And, you know, there have been like so many adaptations of, for example, Sherlock Holmes mm-hmm. already. And um, for those of you guys that are following the news, you might or might not have heard about the fact that um, Arthur Conan Doyle's last work uh, just released in the public domain, The Casebook of Sherlock Holmes. And you might be mm-hmm. like, well, we've seen so many adaptations of Sherlock Holmes from Robert Downey Jr. to Benedict Cumberbatch to mm-hmm. Lucy Liu. Mm-hmm. So so many different adaptations. And, and you'll be like, well, if, you know, he's only now coming into the public well, domain. Well, Lucy Liu was ha- Watson, just to be clear. Okay. I don't remember the... <laughs> that's right. I just wanted to... That's right. I don't know who the... Uh, I don't know, it's that British dude. I don't know what his name is. Um, Sorry. (laughs) No, no, all that is to say, you might be wondering, well, okay, like we've seen the Sherlock Holmes character in countless forms. Why, Mm -hmm. why, how has he had copyright protections up until now? Well, Laura, you know it gets kind of tricky and you can probably explain this better than I can. But um, (laughs) what, what happened just now is that the last book the case book of Sherlock Holmes released in the public domain, last of like a 12 set series or something Mm -hmm. like that. But the copyright of the character is different than the copyright of the book itself. And you can Mm -hmm. maybe explain that a little bit better, Laura. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's similar to the, to the Mickey mouse issue where, Mm -hmm. and especially if you're looking at a character that's from a series, Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously for, for many, many years, the movie studios and BBC and whoever else was producing Sherlock Holmes content, they were paying Arthur Conan Doyle's estate for licensing to do that. So mm-hmm. more than likely they weren't dealing in public domain stuff. Okay. However, when, when a character is in a series like that and, and we're actually seeing this now where actually this year on public domain day, a short story written by Agatha Christie is now part of the public mm-hmm. domain. And it's the first introduction of Miss Marple, which oh. is a very famous character of hers. Now here's the thing. If I wanted to say create a stage adaptation of that story, I could do that now that that's public domain. However, anything that that character does later on in later books, I can't use yet. And that's the same with Sherlock Holmes in the past, where if somebody, as these books start to come into Mm -hmm. the public domain, depending on when they were published, then it's, (laughs) yeah, like, so people could use elements from, you know, this book, this book, this book, but not this final one that you're talking about. Right. You can use characters of Holmes and Watson, um, Mm -hmm. Moriarty, whatever, but if the stories themselves are still copyrighted, you can't make a movie version of that story, right? Right. Yep. Well, well, so, yeah, the practical examples of that are the the Winnie the Pooh horror flick. And also, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, speaking of Sherlock, there was a television show with Hugh Laurie called House. It was actually like a mishmash of a medical drama. And he was Mm -hmm. based on Sherlock Holmes, the main character, Mm -hmm. House. Oh, my God. I had no idea. And the producers were free to say, like, yeah, this is totally, we took this from Sherlock Holmes. And they 
Mm-hmm. They they were working most likely in the public domain because the story mm-hmm. was different enough that they could say, no, this mm-hmm. is just based on that character that we saw in the first book. So right. maybe that's what we'll see moving forward with things like Mickey Mouse. You know, we're just going to reimagine it and put, mm-hmm. you know, Lucy Liu in as a character <laughs> of Piglet or, you know, whatever it is. Right. So. You just blew my mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I've got lots total, of great makes movie total ideas. sense that. <laughs> Yeah, the, like, tortured genius with a drug problem. Yeah, that's Sherlock (laughs) Holmes. Right. Right. Total narcissist. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You guys can look for, if you're interested in what was released this year, just Google, what, Laura? Public Public Domain Domain Day. Day. 2023. (laughs) And you'll see, yeah, some of the stuff that, um, that is now public domain. And I'll tell you, I on purpose didn't tell you the name of that Agatha Christie story because I am working on a play version of it, and I don't want you. Oh to my gosh! Ooh, so, <laughs> leave me alone. <laughs> End on a cliffhanger. I like it. <laughs> and that's all we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Find Laws Don't Judge Me. Please subscribe to, rate, and review our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Check the show notes for related content. And if you'd like to contact us, send us an email at findlawpodcasts at thompsonreuters.com.